I feel like when I first started this job, and probably you too, one of the most common basic Bay Area questions that people ask food writers or food critics is, what is your favorite burrito? I am curious, are you still getting those? And how, how do you respond to them? I've never known how to respond to those things. <laughs> yeah, I'm still getting those. Um, I think every time I emerge in the public, at least one variation on the what is your favorite blank question is asked. Yep. And for yep. me, I'm so fickle because I'm always eating all the time, like everywhere. And so I'm always finding a new favorite of everything, right? It's like very unstable, the position of favorite. It's like... Um, it's like in Dragon Ball Z where there's like the number one fighter in the world that everyone is looking for. So they want to, so they can fight him and dethrone him. But like, it's never one guy, right? Because if you're number one, there's always a target on your back. There's no better way to begin this episode. And with that, hello people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleho. On this episode, we speak with Julia Tertian, a prolific cookbook author based in upstate New York. Her latest book is called Simply Julia, 110 Easy Recipes for Healthy Comfort Food. That's a lot of recipes, and you know that's perfect for a pandemic. Oh yeah, for sure. We're all about that home chef life right now. And it's another first for Extra Spicy. Julia's our first full-time cookbook author who we're featuring, which is very exciting. So during this interview, we're talking about what's involved in making a cookbook, from the proposal to the publication, whether or not she thinks about accessibility and just context that people live in when it comes to making recipes. And also we dig into the great perennial headnote debate, which is all about that text that precedes a recipe. You know, people have a lot of opinions about it apparently. We're so excited to talk to you today. We don't really have that many cookbook authors come on the show, unfortunately. And it's such an important part of the food media industry complex that, um, yeah, there's there's so much for us to dig into. So I'm really excited. No, thank you so much for having me. And I've, you know, I definitely spend most of my time in this kind of odd corner of the cookbook world, but it's part of this bigger thing. And I feel like you both do such a good job of talking about all these different aspects of the bigger thing. So yeah, whatever I can add to that conversation, I'm happy to. So yeah, thanks for having me. So can you describe your corner? Tell us about <laughs> it. <laughs> sure. I feel like I've had a really interesting experience compared to a lot of other cookbook authors I know, because I've I've worked on a lot of other cookbooks besides my own, and I've also done my own. Most people, I think, do one or the other of those two things, and I've gotten to do both. And altogether, if you add up all those books, I've worked on 15 books in pretty much as many years. So it means like a number of editors, a number of photographers, a number of um, publicists, which is like a whole side of cookbooking that I feel like we don't always think about. So yeah, I've worked with just basically a ton of people on a ton of books and I've learned a lot. And does that give you a good sense of the corner? I don't know. I feel like I'm talking too much. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no I think that does a great job of, of just sketching it out, especially for okay. listeners who have never interacted with the cookbook world beyond using a cookbook. There's a lot of like politics and hierarchy and mm -hmm. like certain parts of the food media are sexier versus others. And um, I also think like as someone who has been so prolific in the cookbook writing world. I'm sure you've been through the ringer and <laughs> seen all sides and seen all kinds of, I don't know, things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that is definitely accurate. 
I can look back now and see how broken a lot of things were that, you know, I've been involved in, um, just like the publishing industry, food media, like all that kind of stuff. I also see so much positive stuff and I'm very hopeful about a lot of things now. Um, it's interesting because I think most people interact with cookbooks, just as you're saying, like maybe you pick one up at the bookstore, or at the library, or, you know, you see one mentioned in a magazine you read and maybe you buy it or you check it out. Maybe you, you know, cook some stuff out of it. But I imagine maybe you don't have a sense of all the politics and inside baseball. It's the same with any kind of business that also involves, like, I think a lot of creative output. I think it's kind of the same same thing where there's a lot behind the scenes there there are plenty of professions like this maybe it's even like you know sports or especially like journalism where people think like oh yeah i could i could try that and be pretty good at it like that's not <laughs> it's not much of a heavy lift i could figure that out but i know how much work goes into creating a cookbook and but i'm always interested in hearing the mechanics of it like hearing someone like yourself talk about what that process is like. Can you let people know what goes into this and also what would inspire burnout? You know, cause that's a, it's a very okay, real thing. Yeah. 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 Isn't it easy? Yeah, isn't it easy? <laughs> well, right. I think, I, th I think answering your first question about what is involved in making a cookbook simultaneously answers your second question about why it might lead there to burnout because it's it's a lot and I think you know maybe not knowing all the behind the scenes and kind of politics about stuff I think it's the same with the work itself like when I look at a cookbook when I look at the final product of whether it's my own book or you know any of the hundreds of other cookbooks I own, you know, it doesn't matter. I look at it. It's a pretty simple thing, right? But it's a ton of work to make a really good cookbook. And I just mean that because to write recipes that work, um, to test recipes enough times and to have them tested by enough people that you know that they will work in various kitchens that have all sorts of variables, including, you know, my skillet might be smaller than yours. My knife might be sharper than yours. My oven might get hotter than yours. And to take all of these variables into account uh, and to still produce recipes that will work, um, you know, to answer readers' questions before they might even know they have them, to think about, I don't know, how ingredients are labeled at the grocery store and have those things reflected in how you write down the ingredients in your list of ingredients in the recipe. Um, like I think about like how big the packages are, you know, how big the containers are at the grocery store because I don't want to call for an amount that you have to buy two when you could just buy one, <laughs> you know, like, so taking all of these, you know, many details into consideration, you know, making sure when you take the photographs, there's not something in the photograph that's not reflected in the recipe. Like a lot of people throw a little extra black pepper on something or throw a lemon wedge or something. And then, you know, you go to make the recipe and it's like, wait, this doesn't have pepper. This doesn't have lemon. Like, you know, just it's, it's a mountain of details. And I'm talking about like micro things here, but on the macro level, just the process of building just a whole table of contents and stuff like it's, it's just a lot. To me, it starts with the book proposal, which is, I like to think of it as it's the business mm. plan for the book. Um, 
if you've ever written a business plan for something else, if you've ever made just a plan for something else, a lesson plan or whatever, um, that is very much what the book proposal is. And you're basically making this document that explains what the book is, you know, obviously what you're proposing, but like who you are, like, why are you the right person to do it? What's going to be in this book? So you have your table of contents with the recipes. For me, that is my favorite part of every project is coming up with that table of contents because it's the moment when I feel most creative, most kind of like, okay, here's all these puzzle pieces. I'm moving things around. You include some sample recipes and stuff. Maybe you'll include stuff about who else might be on your team for this. You know, like I've written book proposals as the writer on books that I was not the author of. Um, so sort of explaining what my role will be, you know, maybe we already know the photographer. I feel like I'm just giving a lot of details here. Cause I feel like things like this are talked about in ways though, that aren't like actually tangible. Right. So if anyone listening who wants to write a book proposal, like I hope some of that's helpful. And then, yeah, then hopefully your agent takes that pr book proposal and sells it to a publisher and, that's the ideal scenario. And then you get your book advance, which is um, the money you're given upfront to make your book. And sometimes that is not enough money to make the book you'd like to make. Sometimes it's, it's enough. And for a few people, it's more than enough. From proposal to book on your shelf, like you being the reader, um, you being the person in the bookstore who's unpacking the boxes or the librarian, like from proposal to that moment, it's about two years. And the first year is creating all the content, doing all of your writing, your testing, your photography, the next year is spent usually editing and going through many rounds of editing and then going through many rounds of design, laying out all the pages. Um, a lot of that second year is just spent waiting <laughs> for, I don't know what, um, usually for the book to get printed. And a lot of the second year is also spent planning publicity. So you've made this thing, the publisher has invested in this thing. So now how are they going to make the money back? Um, will they make the money back? And that includes doing things like reaching out to the two of you to see if, you know, you'll speak to someone like me on your podcast. Um, tons of stuff like that. Anyway, does that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> that was really great. While we have all that, there's one quick thing that I want to circle back to is just you were talking about, you know, how someone's oven might heat up different than yours and just these mm -hmm. elements of the kitchen that could make a difference in a recipe. And like, that's, that's thinking about like accessibility or what people have in a really mm -hmm. great way, because I can tell you like, you know, when I was younger for sure, and, and I know even my, my mom would do this sometimes, like when we were younger, she would pass by a cookbook just because she thought like, there's no way in hell that I have what I need to have to be able to use mm -hmm. this book, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and, and that might not have been the case, but I love to think that authors like yourself Think about that. Like, is that a significant portion of the recipe creation, just being able to make it to where, look, you don't have to have one of these, you know, I don't know, like ultra modern with every new gadget kind of thing. Like, I imagine that adds yeah. steps to the process that people don't think about. So, I mean, like, I can only speak for myself, obviously, but like, yes, that's a huge part of my process. I, I basically... I think that cookbooks are unlike a lot of other types of media because 
with cookbooks, not only are you sharing this thing that you hope someone will like read or look at and enjoy, you know, there's pictures, there's words, um, that happens in plenty of books, but what cookbooks offer that nothing else does are recipes, right? So the goal is not just to have someone consume your work, um, no pun intended, um, you know, read it, look at it. You also are asking them ideally to use your book in this incredibly functional way, which is to go buy ingredients, take them into your kitchen, follow the instructions you've given. So I'm asking for this like double investment, like one, please buy my book because I think, you know, you'll get a lot of use out of it. And then two, like totally hold me to that and go buy groceries and spend more money on something I have um, shared with you, spend more time on it, you know, and I just, I, I do not take those investments lightly. And I really want people to feel successful. I basically, my goal in all my work is just for home cooks to not feel stressed mm. out. Um, I would say I've worked on, as I mentioned earlier, I've worked on such a range of books and the string that I think ties all of my work together. Like if I specialize in anything, if all of these books have anything in common, like I'm thinking through every single detail because I, I'm a home cook, just like the people I write for. And I think a lot of people have a lot more things going on in their life than I do that make cooking more stressful. They have jobs outside of their homes. Um, they have um, multiple people in their household. For me, it's just me and my wife and, um, she's pretty open to eating lots of things. <laughs> and, um, she also like is, is such a wonderful combination of like someone who loves to eat, but also is like, she just doesn't care about all this stuff <laughs> as much as I do, which is really refreshing. So, <laughs> all right, I feel like this is a good part to get kind of granular as we like to do, but specifically on the recipes and the idea of ingredients, like what you should get, where you're getting it from, why you shouldn't get it. And uh, so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. So ever since I started working at the Chronicle, you know, we have to help copy edit the print section of the food section right. um, once a week. And part of it is reading the recipes that we publish. And I realized editing recipes shows you how important the ingredients list is to the whole package. We don't really think about them as literature, right? I think as readers, but they're actually so meaningful. And the choices that people make are so interesting, right? Like this lime versus that lime, these shrimp versus those shrimp. Right. And those thoughts really developed when I read this piece by Alicia Kennedy, who's a food writer who has her own newsletter. Um, and it was called on ingredients. And she talks to all these recipe editors and recipe writers about how they navigate ethics when they write the ingredients list too. So when you're talking about ethics, like what, what do you mean? Um, what do I mean? I mean, <laughs> talking about food that is from places that are in conflict, for instance, mm, right? Yeah, or yeah. food that is known to be you know, um, susceptible to a lot of labor abuse, like slavery, <laughs> you know, that's the ultimate labor abuse, right. um, <laughs> environmental reasons, right? Um, weird, like scarcity reasons. So each writer had a different approach. And I thought that was so interesting. Um, and I know Julia has her own approach too, but they have this like really interesting effect where because you have an ingredient listed in a recipe, you have to buy it, right? Like it right. makes people buy things in a way that's so direct and much more likely than like an just a simple advertisement, right? So like recipes are so meaningful in real world terms too. 
You know, it's funny. You and I regularly talk about how easy it would be to do like various things if you don't think about context, right? Like I can imagine for a cookbook author who doesn't think about that, you know, ethics as it's tied to ingredients, like it's really easy to write a recipe. But if you do assign space in your brain to this kind of topic, it can complicate the process so much in a, in a beneficial way in the long run. But boy, it would be really easy to ignore. It's kind of nice to see people actually think about it, you know? Yeah, I mean, of course, because they're people in the world just like us, and we hope that they're living in the same world as we are, right? Yeah. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Soleho, and we're back with Julia Tertian, cookbook author. The implications, though, of what you write have a lot of, you know, they stretch out into the food system, right? Into like things that people become habituated into buying and and thinking are normal and and sort of holding up on a pedestal as mm-hmm. like the the ultimate ingredient. I think about that a lot in terms of shrimp, too, you know, which yeah. has its own. I was going to bring up shrimp as we were talking about this. Yes. Sorry, I just cut you off, but I'm just like, no, no, yes. No. Yeah. But yeah, like the choices that we make in that regard as authors, writers, journalists mm-hmm. have like these really big implications. Yeah. And yeah, I would love to hear more about just how you how you juggle that and just how you feel with about that like responsibility. Yeah. I mean, to me, I mean, just a quick word about shrimp, um, because I think it's the more I understand about um, shrimp and everything that goes into um, making them available for us to buy as consumers, like the more I'm like, I don't know that we should be eating these. But I also love shrimp. And I have trouble holding both these things at the same time. So, yeah, there's one shrimp recipe in the new book. It has a story behind it that is very important to me that I wanted to share. And do I wish I gave more notes about, like, you know, wild-caught shrimp and protect or, like, farm-raised shrimp that are raised in a really smart way and stuff? Like, yeah, I wish I had included that. But I guess that... Reflecting on shrimp quickly there, it brings up what I'm really thinking about when you ask that question in terms of that responsibility and that power to, as you just said, like normalize certain things. And, you know, you're talking about ingredients. But for me, I think about this topic a lot and having nothing to do with the ingredients or the cooking technique, but having everything to do with the storytelling. The fact that cookbooks are welcomed in people's homes and shelves and kitchens in a way that a lot of other types of media just aren't. Um, You know, cookbooks are seen as incredibly friendly, very familiar. You know, my joke that's not really funny is like cookbooks are, you know, books you always know that it's going to end well. (laughs) Um, I don't know. They're very, very welcoming. And within that, I think there's a ton of power to do a lot of what I think of as kind of like Trojan horsing. And, you know, um, in my last cookbook now and again, you know, I had done a Thanksgiving menu, but I had also used the introduction to talk about, um, you know, doing things to support like indigenous women on Thanksgiving. I've talked a ton in all my books about my wife and our marriage because Grace is wonderful and I love talking about her. And also she's the person I cook with and for the most often. So she comes up in a lot of my writing But it's also incredibly intentional because in something as familiar and as comfortable as a cookbook, I have the ability to share about my comfortable, very normal day-to-day life, which is me, a woman married to another woman, which, I don't know, in the year 2021 in America, I don't think is that novel. Um, 
and that's the goal, right? <laughs> For it to not feel like super revolutionary in any way. But I think it's really valuable to use something like a cookbook to normalize our, our marriage. Just like in my new cookbook, I talk a lot about, you know, it's a book that has healthy in the subtitle. It's a book of recipes for healthy comfort food. Um, but throughout the book, I really interrogate what does the word healthy mm. mean? Um, I don't know that I know the answer to that, but I know how I feel when I feel healthy. I wrote very honestly about things like body image and stuff, stuff I've really struggled with my whole life, which I think, to be totally honest, and I can't speak for anyone else, but I think that's very true of a lot of people in the food industry. I think a lot of us come to the food industry from an obsession with food, and obsessions tend to sometimes be a little bit toxic. Um, so to be able to, in this cookbook, basically write a healthy cookbook that's not about weight loss, <laughs> um, that feels like a big deal to me. And I feel like I have this ability to do that in a way that's a little unexpected. That's kind of where I think about that question of kind of, yeah, responsibility behind ingredients and stuff. It's, it, ha it also has to do with everything around the ingredients with the stories. So I wanted to pivot to something spicy. <laughs> okay, you, you're talking about head notes, uh, which are, yes, a really important part of this book. And you tell so many stories. There's like so much storytelling, right, about people you feed and about grace and and even the pets, which I am very happy about. Um, but I... I'm curious about how you feel about this like perennial debate that has, seems to happen all the time about people who just want recipes. Mm, they don't mm -hmm. want to read any of the essays, any of the text. Um, primarily, they're talking about it in terms of blogs yeah. and like food writing. Um, but surely you have feelings about this. And I, I'm so, yeah, because this is your life. Yeah. My feelings are that not every cookbook is for everyone. And I think if you try to make a book that's for everyone... That's like, you know, who's the guy who pushes the thing up the mountain, the hill? Oh, Sisyphean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I can never remember. Um, it's kind of like that. And I think at the same time, I think people come to cookbooks for all different reasons. So a lot of people just come for the recipe. They'll never read the head notes. Great. Fine. You're welcome to come into the book. I, I am totally happy with that. A lot of people buy cookbooks and never cook. Just like a lot of people watch cooking shows and don't cook. You know, they watch them while you're eating takeout or something, which is totally fine. You know, cookbooks contain stories. You can just read them as stories. You know, in many ways, I feel like my books that are like my own projects are very like kind of memoirs disguised as cookbooks in a way. Um, so if you just want to read them, if you never want to make a recipe, great. Maybe you don't want to look at any of these words, <laughs> recipes or head notes, and you just want to look at the pictures. That's also great. That's how I first got into cookbooks. Like I flipped through them when I was a little kid before I could read. I just was very drawn to them. So I think they serve a lot of different purposes. I think some people like to enjoy all these different parts of them. Um, I have no judgment about what brings you to a cookbook or what you get out of it. I just, I hope you get something out of it. All right, when it comes to the internet, there's this, especially Twitter, there's this prevailing theory, right, that every day there's a main character. The goal should never be it. And I feel like recently there was definitely a food world main character. Soleil, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You know, the funny thing is a lot of the food media Twitter main characters are people who say the same thing that I'm going to talk about. <laughs> right now oh, which God. is 
I wish we could just skip ahead to the recipe right. on food blogs. Right. And always, it's always somebody like Mindy Kaling said it and then got clowned on on Twitter. Yep. Um, all kinds of people. So this latest thing is the culmination of all of that discourse where this guy named Tom Redman posted on Twitter about this new product that he and some friends were making called Recipeasly, which is already a name that sounds really gross, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> but the tagline is, your favorite recipes except without the ads or life stories, with a I, cute donut emoji. Wow. I mean, that's basically taking a topic. You see people getting dunked on whenever they take on this topic on social media all the time. And then you build a business around it. I, I don't I don't understand what logic went into this. Right. Because the funny thing is people put all that stuff on their websites and, you know, sometimes they clutter them with ads and all that stuff because they're trying to make money trying off of labor that money. is mostly free. Yep. And so these people step in and they're like, we're going to remove all that stuff and make the money that you would have made. I don't I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, this all goes back to who's in the room when the idea is created. And I feel like that room could have used some different voices. I mean, that's just me. Right. It's so I don't know. It's it's so disturbing how much people want content without the context. Oh, my right? God. Yeah. It, it's just like, OK, so you're going to use someone's labor and just not give a damn about them. Like, that's cool. I love that. And how quickly did it go from being a website to being a blank page with an apology written on it? Uh, oh, my God. Yeah. No, it was like <laughs> the fastest real-time cancellation I've seen in a long time. It moved quick. I mean, rightfully so, but hot damn, it moved quick. Yeah. Well, I think it also helps that the the initial tweet signed off feedback and RTs appreciated like prayer hands. So, I mean, he was he was literally asking for it. Quickly became the one main character. <laughs> Here's Julia again. I think food bloggers are so undervalued. And I think most of them are giving you content for free. And I feel like the least you can do is like read what the you know, recipe means to them or but also you can scroll through it and I think you can keep that to yourself and you don't need to go tell everyone on social media. That's basically what I think. I don't care what anyone is doing if they're, you know, as long as they're not hurting anyone. I think there's this, there's not usually a lot of honest talk about the financial reality behind a lot of this work. And there's a lot of expectation that it should be free. And that just means a lot of people are undervalued and underpaid along the way because I think especially when it's seen as having some kind of prestige like if something's in print or something people will you know I've known people who have like photographed books well below their rate because they want to have that experience I've known people who have worked on food shoots as like a prop stylist or food stylist and they're not paid because they just want that experience and I just I don't know I just believe people should be paid for their work and that extends to writers and recipe developers like it's a ton of work um so for the people who just want to skip all that, I just, yeah, okay, skip it. But just, I don't think you have to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, before you go, we'd love for you to have an opportunity to tell listeners just where they can find your work, maybe a little bit about even the title of your cookbook, which we didn't sure. even mention yet. <laughs> um, so it is called Simply Julia, which I think I'm finally used to saying without totally blushing. Um, <laughs> that is just the title of the book. Um, it's 
Simply Julia, 110 Easy Recipes for Healthy Comfort Food. And it is just that. It's 110 incredibly easy, I think very approachable recipes like we talked about, all written with all the consideration that um, I got to share with you today, which I'm really grateful for. It is available wherever books are sold. Um, you can find out more about the book, more about me on my website, which is just juliatertian.com. And I have a podcast called Keep Calm and Cook On. All this information's on my website. Um, I'm super excited about the book. I am super excited. It is an excuse to talk to people I really enjoy talking to, like the two of you, and I'm not just saying that. And um, I think that's everything. <laughs> I think so. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And I appreciate your time. And um, I'm really happy the two of you are doing this podcast. I think it's a really nice addition to the paper. And it's been really great to listen to. Really Thank appreciate you. it. And yeah, no, I mean, this has been so lovely. And hopefully the you will be the first of many cookbook authors to come on awesome. the show. Awesome. And with that, that's all we have for today. Thanks again to Julia Tertian for being in conversation with us. And to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.